Zechariah chapter 1 through 3 tonight, Lord willing. I think we'll get through it. Uh, Zechariah, we've already gone through a full introduction. And so you've got a vast amount of information about the book, the breakdown and all. But Zechariah, again, is the 11th minor prophet of the 12. The second post-captivity, you have um, Haggai before him, Malachi next. And the main criteria to determine a minor prophet really is the length of the book. But that's a misnomer because uh, Zechariah contains 14 chapters. Daniel only contains 12. And Daniel is considered a, my, a major prophet. So, so much for that category. And they're all major leaguers to me. Um, they just divide them that way, whatever that may mean. Now, Zechariah is apocalyptic. We've talked about that, dealing with signs and symbols and visions. And the important thing as you go through the book of Zechariah, that all the symbols and all the mystery, if you will, is interpreted for us so that we're not left to our own understanding. It's like the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is the easiest book because the table of contents is given to you in chapter 1. The things he saw, the glorified Christ, the things that are, the church age, chapter 2 and 3, and the things hereafter, after the church is raptured, in chapter 4, 5, you're in heaven, chapter 6, the Antichrist moves in, and you have the great tribulation, and tribulation, you come back to the earth in chapter 19, he uh, sets up the kingdom after he judges the nations. You've got the book of Revelation. God knew he couldn't trust us with it, so he gave us the table of contents. Read the table of contents, okay? So... The introduction and call to repentance, that's how he opens up. How does the New Testament open up? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist. How does it end? Malachi, repent. He's going to send the messenger. John the Baptist. Verse 1. It says, in the eighth month of the second year, Darius... The word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edu, the prophet, saying, The Lord has been very angry with your fathers. So here again, the introduction, the, um, the date of the prophecy was the eighth month, the second year. Again, the, um, the dates, uh, like Haggai, are according to the Gentile rulers, the time of the Gentiles, because Israel's not in control now. And... Um, Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold, and from there, the head of gold, the arms and shoulders of silver, um, the belly of brass, Greece, and then the legs of iron, Rome. And then there is a big pause, the church age, and once the church is removed, then you will begin the ten toes of iron and clay, which is a ten-nation confederacy that's going to fall under the control and ruling of the Antichrist. The ten nations will scoop him up and give him that exalted position he will turn around and destroy and control everything um and so that whole picture is given to us right now they've come out of captivity and so this is um around 520 um bc this is darius not the darius of daniel's time but um darius um uh his staff piece from um 521 to 486 and um again he's the persian um king uh, his name means Lord. And um, here he demonstrates that God's attitude towards uh, the fathers as well as the nations is his anger about sin on both ends. Um, you, the dates you can check with Haggai 1.1 and 2.1. And, and there, um, um, Haggai's first prophecy. Um, here we have two months after Haggai's prophecy. 
in uh, the first prophecy and one month after his second prophecy. And as you check the dates, you see that. So these guys go hand in hand. Uh, it's like a tag team. God has brought back a little bit under 50,000 people from the remnant. The majority have stayed in Babylon because business is good. They've learned the business. They're no longer uh, workers of the land, but God's going to bring them back to the land. Um, and so um, God is encouraging them because they're finding difficulties and God's starting to work. He wants his temple built, at least the foundation. And the word of the Lord, notice Yahweh, uh, came to Zechariah, the common expression for God making his revelation known by his spirit to an individual. Uh, these were prophets. Uh, will, they'll be called also seers in, in the Old Testament. And they, uh, by God's grace, were allowed to communicate to receive the revelation of God. They did not speak of their own impulse or origin. Second Peter chapter 1, verse um, 19 through 21 says, But they were carried along by the Spirit of God. So that they were able to record infallible and errant God's revelation so that what you possess is not the words of men, but the words of God speaking through men. And that's important. The majority of churches, the majority of Christian colleges, the majority of seminaries do not believe in the big theological word, plenary verbal, plenary verbal inspiration. Every word is inerrant and infallible. They don't believe that. I believe that. I believe that we have the Texas Receptus handed down for Amniot. There are other manuscripts. We don't want to get into it right now, but I think they're inferior, and we are guaranteed that God has given us his word. Guaranteed. If not, who's going to tell me what is inspired and what isn't? You? A Ph.D.? Of course not. Now, the prophet's genealogy is given to us, the son of Uriah there, the grandson of Edu the prophet. And um, as, as you look here, uh, later on we're going to be told in chapter 2, verse 4, that uh, Zechariah is younger than Haggai. The angel says, go tell the young man. Um, Zechariah, um, again, it's believed that um, the Zechariah that Jesus um, uh, accused the Jews of killing between the temple and the altar in Matthew 23, uh, 35, that this is Zechariah, who the prophets of who the people kill. And as you know, the Jews were always uh, rejecting the prophets. That's one of the accusations. Um, he's of the line of David, as we've seen in the study of Haggai. And um, his father... His name means Yahweh blesses, uh, and um, there were many men with this name, uh, as you look through the scriptures, and he's a grandson of Edu, um, and the prophet here, one who speaks by God's direction. Um, again, several people with that name, um, Ezra 5.1, bears his name, confirms the genealogy. Uh, if you combine the three names, it means the Lord remembers, the Lord blesses his witness at the appointed time. What's the appointed time right now? The time of the Gentiles. Okay, the time of the Gentiles run from the head of gold all the way to the ten toes of iron and clay. With a little intermission after the legs of iron, Rome, the church age, and then when God removes his church, he will begin once again the Antichrist will come upon the scene, the church will be removed, and it will be the worst seven years this world has ever, ever experienced. And we've experienced some pretty horrible times, World War One, World War Two, and all the other wars. We've had maybe 200 years of peace in all our existence. 
And in those 200 years, we've been preparing to go to war. We're just not very nice people. Um, in verse uh, 2, the message of Zechariah was one of um, uh, repentance. Um, the Lord is very angry with your fathers. Um, the past, they had neglected the temple at this point. But in the past, they had gotten into idolatry. That's why they went into 70 years of captivity. Um, Zechariah 1, 2, 7, 7, 7, 12. We'll bring it up again. And the Lord was, um, was set on reconciling his people. This is always the heart of God. Look at verse 3. He says, uh, Therefore, uh, say to them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets preached, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds, but they did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. And so once again, the Lord sets the condition of reconciliation. The authority is, says the Lord, there's the authority, appears 22 times in the book. The authority is supreme, the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven, 52 times. Uh, the captain of the armies of heaven is indicated in this book. He's the protector. He's never lost a fight against anybody. The invitation is to what? To return, to repent. The benefit was that God would turn to them. Notice very, very clearly. The only way that we can walk with God is that we agree with him. Amos 3.3 says, can two walk together except they be agreed? It's a rhetorical question with one answer. No. And by the way, we agree with God. He does not agree with us. He sets the standards, okay? Now, the church is being indoctrinated on the reverse today. And the church is redefining Christianity, the word of God, the church, and everything else. Okay, So you have to drop that plumb line and judge what people say. If you come here and you listen to me teach in the morning, the evening, whenever you come, and if you're not writing down and examining what I say and doing your homework, you're a candidate for deception. You should be able to ask anybody who teaches at any time, wherever you go, you know, I don't really understand what you said. Could you explain this? Or you know what? I think that you kind of missed it here. If they don't want to answer you, get up and walk out. It's just real simple. Okay? We're here to glorify the Lord and to try to stay as close as we can to the scriptures. Doesn't mean everybody had that we have all the answers. It means that we're doing the best we can, the best way we know how. And um, God will be gracious enough to take care of us. And so, um, the warning... In, in verse 4 down to 6, um, there in, in verse 4, uh, from history, they were not to follow the example of the rebellious fathers against the messengers of God's word, the ones he sent out. Um, they would not turn away from their evil. They would refuse to listen to God. We have many examples of the Old Testament especially the northern kingdom, equally to the southern kingdom. The former prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Hosea, Obadiah, whoever they may be, many of them not of the priestly uh, order, but they were sent out because the priestly order, the kings and all the people had become so corrupt. The lessons to be learned in verse 5 and 6, he says, your fathers were, uh, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? 
Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I command my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, Just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. And so the rhetorical questions in verse 5 have only one answer. The fathers, they're dead. The prophets, do they live forever? No. Both fathers and prophets are finite, mortal. One day if the Lord tarries, you're going to hear, Xavier Reese died. Do not believe him. I moved. I'll never be more alive than I am then. I'm just going to move out of this old tent into my new house. Okay? That's all I'm going to do. And so, the second rhetorical question, again, has only one answer. Yes. In verse 6, the word of God overtook and judged their fathers. And they acknowledged God was just in his judgment. They received their due there in verse 6. So they agree with God here. So the implication is there's repentance. Now when there's repentance in the life of a Christian, because he's talking to the people of God, right? He's not talking to the heathen, right? When there's repentance from a believer that falls into sin, then God can do a work in their hearts. Then God can have fellowship with us again, right? When sin comes into our life, we're not in fellowship. We can say we're in fellowship. You know, you can pull out your phone and be talking, acting like you're talking. I drive up and I look at the child. Oh, God, I didn't want to bother you on the phone. But, you know, you just may be acting. Your phone could be dead. But you're just putting on an act. And even laughing. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There's nobody on the other end. This is what happens when sin enters your life or mine. I can pray. I can open the word. I can even go to church. But I'm out of fellowship with God. It's not until I confess my sin. Until I charge that battery. Until I make that connection. You're driving down the freeway. And you're on the phone. And all of a sudden. You drop that call like a bad habit. You've gotten in a hole. That's what it does. Sin drops your call. And until you redial and say. Please forgive me. For boom, boom, boom. Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ. Then there's connection again. And so we have to be very clear on this. This is not works for salvation. It's honoring God's name and his word. And understanding our salvation. With Jesus Christ. Now. When you get to verse 7. The visions begin. Um. All the visions run from verse 7 here all the way to chapter 6, verse 8, really. Sometimes they run into 15, but I think starting verse 9 down and that, it's not a vision anymore, and we'll see that when we get there. Um, all these visions were, came in one night, okay? Um, and they're marked as visions, as we'll see. Um, some people divide them into 7, some into 8. Some take every imagery and make it a vision, and they make it into ten. I don't really care how, how you count them. 
I care that you understand what they're saying and how they're related and how they're connected, okay? I don't go the 10 route because I think that many of them, as we're going to see the first ones here, uh, at least in, at the end of chapter 1 that we're going to go next after that, is that you'll see the relationship between the two, and I don't think you can separate them. I think it's one. So, um, but once again, seeing the connection of that. Um, now, um, verse 7 says, On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Sabbath, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edu, the prophet. So we get the date here of the vision. It took place February 24th. Uh, the month is according to the Jewish calendar, like Haggai, but the years are according to the Gentile kings, 520 B.C. Um, the vision took place February 24th, 520 B.C., three months after um, Zechariah received the word in chapter 1, verse um, uh, 1. And you compare it with this one. The same genealogy is given here. And in verse 8, he says, I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse, and uh, and he stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow, and behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. Then I said, My Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me uh, said to me, I will show you what they are. So, let me go to verse 10. And the man who, um, who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. And so the vision of the four horses here are revealed to Zechariah. Uh, he came under the influence of God here. I saw by night. So it's a vision while he's awake. It happens to happen at night. This is not a dream. A dream is when you're sleeping. He's awake. It just happens to be by night. And the word saw there um, is, again, in reference to the vision. It means to behold, to perceive the vision, um, again, during the night. But don't mistake in it or identify it as um, a dream. The prophet was also called a seer, as I mentioned earlier. Samuel was called a seer. The prophet Gad was called a seer. Second Samuel 9-11, uh, 1 Chronicles 21-9, and others. Zechariah, in verse 8, began to observe what God was revealing to him. And the word behold indicates a sudden appearance. All of a sudden, you know, you're driving down the freeway, and all of a sudden you see a crashing. It just catches your attention. This is the, the gist behind the word behold. And he's suddenly appears this man riding on a red horse, and red is a symbol of war. Now, you also have the four horses of the apocalypse in the book of Revelation. Now, they are different than these, okay? Those are for the tribulation, great tribulation. It begins in, the, in, in Revelation 6, it begins with a white horse with a man on it with no bow, or he has a bow but no arrow. That is the Antichrist, false peace. He conquers through diplomacy, not through war at first. Then there's the red horse, war. Then there's famine. Then there's pestilence that follows. So the order there is different. Here, we have the red horse first, and it is a symbol of war. The horse and the color red. Um, He saw them in a wooded ravine among the myrtle trees, and um, they are native to... Uh, the land of Israel, 
in uh, the ravine here, the hollow. It could be down there in the valley of the Kidron Valley or Hinnom, somewhere down there, because the whole focus is Jerusalem throughout the whole book, the land of Israel, okay? So some people teach replacement theology, and I don't want to be the dead horse, but I want you to understand clearly that we do not believe in replacement theology. Replacement theology teaches that God is through with Israel and that now we, the church, are Israel. So all the promises, all the blessings of Israel are now ours. You get an F in the subject of the Bible. You just flunked. That's insidious. It's ludicrous. It's unbiblical. Really, you're calling God a liar. You're saying God made a mistake. You're taking God's check with his name in it, washing it out and putting your name in there. That's fraud. That's deception. And I feel very strongly about this. What do you do with Romans 9, 10, and 11 that Paul speaks about Israel for the future? What do you do with Revelation chapter 6 to 18? What do you do with the majority? What do you do with all of Zechariah? What do you do with the majority of the major minor, minor prophets that speak about Israel in the future, the millennial kingdom? Do you realize there's more material in the millennial kingdom than any other topic in, in the scripture? Nobody teaches on it. I would encourage you to get the series that we did on, on the millennial kingdom. It's very important you understand that. Now notice he saw others behind him were horses. Red, sorrel, and white. Again, the red war. Sorrel, a tanny, kind of yellow, dirty yellow, um, symbolic of strength, and the white, symbolic of peace or victory, depending on what's going on. And so, the vision here in verse 9 was a mystery to Zechariah, so he asked the man on the red horse the question. Then I said, my Lord, what are these? He had no clue. Now, Peter tells us in his epistle that some of the prophets spoke at times and they didn't have any clue what was going on. They searched what manner of time and to who and I don't know. And then other times they knew exactly, right? In other words, God can anoint a prophet to write his revelation. He doesn't have to understand it. God guarantees as he gives it and he allows them to write it down that it is exactly as God gave it and it's for the future generation. The inerrancy, the credibility, the accuracy of God's word does not depend on the man that God used. It was dependent on the spirit that was a channel of the revelation. All right? And so here, the prophet, he has no clue. We don't understand the Bible because we're so smart, because we're educated. Do you realize that the majority of people, many of all, never knew how to read? They were illiterate. They became Christians and they learned to read by the Bible. And they were godly men and women. They have no seminary education. They weren't educated. They were just, well, they had a BA. They were born again. That's pretty good. I'll take that degree. Right? Even though 
Zechariah had no understanding about what he saw. He knew it was the revelation of God. The book here is symbolic in signs and visions and symbols that for the most part are interpreted for us by the angel. 19, 4-6, uh, all throughout there. The angel gives us the interpretation, we are told. So we're not left to our own subjective understanding. Now, notice still in 9, the angel answered that he would reveal it to Zechariah. So the angel who talked with me said to me, uh, I will show you what they are. Now, an angel came to Daniel in the ninth chapter as he is um, all at the end of the 70-year captivity, recognizing this, according to the books of Jeremiah, he seeks the Lord, and, and while he's, um, he's praying, the angel Gabriel is sent to him to give him the 70 weeks of Daniel. <laughs> okay? And so God uses his angels, ministering spirits, to the earth of salvation. Chapter 1 of Hebrews, verse 14. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this also. Um, the man standing among the myrtle trees in verse 10, probably another angel, and he told Zechariah, these are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. Uh, if you remember uh, when um, the angels, the sons of God, came up before the throne in heaven uh, for whatever, roll call or whatever, Satan presented himself too, Job chapter 1 and 2. And God says, um, where you been, Satan, Lucifer, up and down, cruising to and fro the earth? And then God solicited the testing. Have you considered my servant Job? The word consider is a military word that means the weakest, the most strategic way to defeat him. He hates sin. He loves God. He hates evil. Righteous man. Wow. Walking to and fro, these are good angels. The one commanding these horses is the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh. Their mission of these angelic watchers was to patrol the activities of the nations of the world in relationship to Israel, the people of God, walking to and fro throughout the earth. God's angels are overseeing the world. They're looking at it. And yet God doesn't force men or women to act. He'll intervene. He'll try to reach them, but he doesn't force anybody to obey him. No one at all. And yet nothing escapes God. He knows the end from the beginning. God has never said to Gabriel, huh, I didn't know he was going to do that. Never. God can't learn anything. God cannot be surprised. God cannot be shocked. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> when you're like that, you don't have to worry about anybody, do you? Noah is showing divine activity and control over the affairs of the world. For now was quiet, resting. The careless ease of the nations while Israel was suffering, God would soon shake them up. This is the head of gold that has passed already. It's been judged by Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia now is on the throne. There's going to be the 
the goat, the he-goat. Alexander the Great is going to come and break one of his horns, knock him out. <laughs> God's in control. And yet, as he's in control overseeing the world, he allows men to make decisions that are not forced upon them by him. This way he can make them accountable and responsible for what they do. Otherwise, he would have to be unjust. If God would force you to do evil, how could he judge you for the evil he forced you to do? And yet, when evil is presented before you, you have a choice to choose, right? And God tells you, don't do it. And then whatever choice you do, you're responsible for, right? Why? Because you have a free will. It's simple. And so, in verse 11... So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. But God's on the throne, right? He's not biting his nails. In 12 to 17, the angel of the Lord now intercedes for Jerusalem. Remember, you have Yahweh, the Father, you have the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and then you have the angel that's talking to Zechariah and interpreting for him, and you have other angels involved. So you've got to kind of mark the people that are involved here. In verse 12, it says, Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the city of Judah against which you were angry these 70 years? So the question... How long, Lord? Jesus here is the one who's interceding for Jerusalem. The angel of the Lord. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. How many times I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. So now your, your nation and your city is left to you desolate. And you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Wept over Jerusalem. Jeremiah, the Lamentations, he went outside the city and he wept over Jerusalem. Wow. Verse 13, down to 17, Yahweh answers good and comfortable words regarding Jerusalem. He says, so the angel who spoke with me said to me, so this is just a regular angel, the one back in the beginning. Proclaim, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion in great zeal. The context is Jerusalem, the nation of Israel. You cannot apply this to the United States, to anybody else, okay? I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease, for I was a little angry, and they helped, but with evil intent. Now, In verse 14, Zechariah was told by the angel to proclaim the captain of the armies of heaven was a jealous God towards Jerusalem in the great zeal for Zion. He, he calls it his city. By the way, Jerusalem will be the capital of the world during the millennial kingdom. Okay? <laughs> there won't be no UN. No United Nothings. Okay? There won't be nobody protesting, guaranteed. 
God was angry at the nations he used to chasten his own people. Why? Because they had no mercy over the Jewish nation. They went beyond the violence and the cruelty that God intended. Right? And so God is just. God's not going to punish them for what he used them to chasten them, only what they went beyond. God is absolutely just. This is his complaint here. God was returning to Jerusalem. Verse 15, I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease. They helped, but with evil intent. Once again, God knows the heart, the intent. In verse 16, he says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. In verse 16, God returns to Jerusalem with mercy. He's not only talking about the short term here, but he's going all the way to the millennial kingdom. The second, the, the, towards here he's talking about the millennial kingdom ultimately, as every chapter will deal with this. God's house will be built. The foundation was going to be laid. Book of Ezra tells us that they laid it, okay? They rejoiced over it. The, um, the young men were happy. The old men were sad because the old men had seen the glory of Solomon's temple. And in comparison, it was nothing. But yet, Zechariah is going to tell us, despise not the day of small things. See, many of you have come in here years after, and you just come in and you sit down, and it's comfortable with air conditioning, and the lights are nice. But... The little things in the day of small things when we start as a Bible study. And when we rented places, we had to clean up and carry everything and all the hassle, setting up chairs, everything else. All that was preparatory for all this. That we never forget where God brought us from. This building means absolutely nothing to me. Unless God is going to use it to teach the word of God. Absolutely nothing. Everything that we have received, we have received of God. We own nothing. It's all for his use and for his glory. As you walk around this property, you don't see any real expensive things. You see a building that is kept up. It's clean, presentable. And we try to keep it as simple as possible like that. And try to do the best we can with what God provides. Live within our means to serve the people and to make sure the word goes out. And so here in verse 16. Um, his house would be built. He returned to Jerusalem. And he would expand Jerusalem. A measuring rod. A measuring stick. A tape measure. He's expanding it. Now. It's short-term, and it's ultimately long-term, but the context is the millennial kingdom. Um, in verse 17, um, he says, again, proclaim, saying, this says the Lord of hosts. And there's that title again. My city shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and will 
again choose Jerusalem. This takes us all the way to the millennial kingdom. Jesus will set up his kingdom. Jerusalem will be the capital. Every nation will have to come in once a year. Later on, we'll get at the end of Zechariah. Or they will get no rain. Israel will rule. The Gentiles will serve Israel. We, the church, will rule and reign with Jesus. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. The earth will be redone. The topography of Jerusalem, the temple in Ezekiel 40 or 48, would not fit there right now. He will stand on the Mount of Olives. We'll see at the end of Zechariah. It will split in two. Water will come forth from Jerusalem, one to the Dead Sea to heal it, the other one to the Mediterranean, and then the temple in Ezekiel 44 will fit right up there, okay? Uh, the child will play with a, a poisonous snake. He'll put his hand into his den. The lamb will lay down with the lion, not in the lion. Um, yet, in spite of all that, the people who repopulate the earth, they didn't take the mark of the beast of the Antichrist, they will live like you and I, marrying, having to be saved, repenting, having children, and they will have death. And when there's death, there's also sin. So many people think in the millennial kingdom there'll be no sin. Yes, there is. Wherever there's sin, there's death. If there's death, there's sin. The eternal kingdom after the thousand years, after the white throne judgment, then that's where there's no tears, no more sorrow, no more pain. Now, when we are with Jesus during the thousand years there is no sorrow pain for us we're glorified we're ruling with him but those people who repopulate the earth that's a whole different matter and so here he takes them all the way to the end short term um, but long term is the focus here in the kingdom age now in verse 18 we have the vision of the horses uh, of the horns i'm sorry in this second vision. And uh, the Hebrew text. Um, chapter 2. Begins here. Alright. Uh, again chapter and verse. Has been placed for the facilitating. The, for us to find things. Okay. It's, it's, they're not in the original text. They're just like letters written. And so. Here in verse 18. He says. Then I raised my eyes and looked. And there were four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he answered me, these are the horns that have uh, scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could lift up his head but the craftsmen are coming to terrify them, to cast out the horns of the nations that lift up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter them. Now, here in verse 18 to 21, you have two types of personalities here, or characters. You have the, um, uh, the horns, and you have the, what they call here, the um, craftsmen, or the smiths, or the cutters, okay? Now, I see this as one vision. There are those who see it as two visions, okay? And this is where they start mounting up ten visions. But I see them connected. I see it as one vision with two characters, okay? What is going on here is as he sees this, um, this second vision of... Um, 
of the horns here, he asks once again, he doesn't know what's going on. Um, so he asks the angel again, and he answers him. These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Now, context, context, context. This is right after the 70-year captivity. These are the horns that have scattered Judah and Israel. The horns are symbolic of power. Okay? Uh, Psalm 75.10, Jeremiah 48.25, uh, Daniel 2 and 7, the horn of uh, Alexander the Great. Okay, and the horn also of Antiochus Epiphany. Those are all the ten horns and ten crowns of the beast in Revelation. Powers, empires. Okay, and so who are, who are the four horns? It says here those are scattered Israel and Judah, right? So who are they? The head of gold, Babylon, silver, arms and chest, Medo-Persia, belly of brass, Greece, legs of iron. Rome. Simple. This is all part of the time of the Gentiles. You have to put it in context. Okay? Um, God would judge these nations for their treatment of the Jew by the craftsmen. So the horns are the four empires that God used to chasten his people to an extent through Babylon, but then he uses the succeeding empire to judge the preceding empire because they went a little further than God that he just mentioned in chapter 1, right? The first vision. So every vision is an expansion of the first vision. Further, more detail, all right? It all deals with the Jew. It deals with the nation of Israel. It deals with the ultimate millennial kingdom. And so, this um, aspect of the craftsmen, it was Medo-Persia that judged and conquered Babylon. It was Greece that destroyed and conquered Persia because Medo dropped out and Persia took it over. And then Rome for Greece. Okay? And that's all he's saying here. So, God would judge these nations for their treatment of the Jew. When you read Matthew, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, always go together. One of the great mistakes that people have so much bad theology out of those two chapters is because they separate them. And Matthew's gospel is written to who? The Jew. So you have to understand the backdrop of the Jews, the nation. And in Matthew 24, um, he speaks about the tribulation and great tribulation. He speaks in Matthew 24, 15 about the abomination of desolation when the Antichrist goes into the temple that he will build for the Jews and declares himself God that Paul speaks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And then as he returns on the second coming, right after the great tribulation, Jesus returns in glory. At the end of chapter 24, Jesus has already returned in the second coming. Matthew 25 is hooked to 24 Jewish. You get the parable of the five foolish virgins, wise virgins, right? Many teach that is teaching the rapture. Wrong. It cannot. That's at the end of the tribulation when Jesus come back the second coming. Matthew 24 is about the second coming. Not the rapture. 
Okay? What's the first thing Jesus does when he comes back? Read 25. He rewards those who were faithful, who didn't take the mark of the beast, who were good stewards. And then he judges the nations. How they treated the Jew during the great tribulation. When you did it to the least of my brethren, you visited me in prison. You gave me a cold cup or glass of water. When did we do this, Lord? When you did it to the least of my brethren, Jew, you did it unto me. The sheep from the goat. The elect in Matthew 24 is not the church. It's the Jew. Context, context, context. It will clear up so much bad theology. All right? Very, very important. So, God is very serious about the Jewish people. What we do, how we treat them, what we say. Now, having said that, and we're not going to get any further. Um, this does not mean that everything that Israel does today is absolutely honorable. Or absolutely right. They are fallen, pagan, secular people and nation. Let's make that perfectly clear. God has brought them back in the land. That's the first step. They've come back like the people here. Out of Babylon into the land. But they're not back with God, right? The first chapter of Haggai. The first message of Zechariah. What was it? Repentance. They were in the land, but they weren't back with God. God is yet to pour out His Spirit upon the nation of Israel. Read Ezekiel 36, 37, the valley of dry bones. Okay? So, we don't defend or justify that everything that Israel does today is right. We're not saying that. What I'm saying is that God says... That his people, and he will get into as we get into Zechariah, are the apple of his eye. Okay, the apple of your eye is right the center. Okay, the pupil, if you will. And when someone tries to touch that, you jump back right away and defend yourself, right? Well, God says, they're the apple of my eye. You touch that. He's the captain of the armies of heaven. He's never lost a war. He fears no one. And he deals from the greatest to the least. So, those that bless you, I will bless. Those that curse you, I will curse. Genesis 12.3. That principle is still in effect today. And I've stated it before. Let me say it again. I would beg you to do a study on the nation's throughout history who have gone against Israel who have betrayed Israel who have deceived Israel who have opposed Israel and to see what has happened to them I'll give you one little clue England England used to boast that the sun never went down on her empire God used England to take the gospel all over the world. You know that, right? But like us, 
they started getting away from God. And the gospel became less relevant, less important, more liberal. And all of a sudden, a little at a time, they kept going against Israel, the British mandate. Prior to the independence of 48, they had already made a deal with the Arab nations to betray Israel. In fact, they equipped them with all the armament to attack Israel. Read your history. What has happened to England? All her subjects were all over the world. Many of them now are, are Muslim. The sun only goes down on a little island. And she's surrounded by her subjects that are now her enemies. I don't think that's a coincidence. And I think that if God had not been merciful to us in this election, I believe judgment was coming in a great, great form from God upon us. It still may. After. This is just a window of mercy, ladies and gentlemen. That's all it is. Man is not the solution. This is just God's mercy, God's grace. So if we look at life from the perspective of the scriptures, if we look at the world and we have a biblical world view, we are one of the wisest people in the world. We know why things happen. We know how we can avoid stupidity and very severe consequences when we walk with God. And that he will always be faithful as we walk with him, right? And so it's important that we agree with him. Not that he agree with us. That's never going to happen. Never has, never will. And so, um, we only got to one chapter. It's okay. No big deal. I'm more concerned that you understand what God's word says, and I'm more interested that God ministered to us on the reality of what we study and how it applies to our life, and that we be able to look at the world through the eyes of God and the scriptures. So we are not stressing out like the rest of the world. We're not running around like a chicken with our head cut off. We're not hanging on to all the material things like a baby to a rattle when God wants to take it away. You understand? But we hold everything real loose and put the value on the true priorities of life and the things that God has for us. One, he wants you to walk with him. To love him more than anybody else, more than your wife, more than your husband, more than your children, more than your grandchildren, more than anybody else. Then to obey him and you'll be able to love others. And then to serve him according as he has enabled you and gifted you. That you don't just sit. Listen, if this window time is only four years, we've got a very, very small time. What are you going to do in the next four years? Let's take it four more. Let's say he's going to be merciful. Give us eight years window time. What are you going to do in the next years? Not for you, the kingdom of God. 
That doesn't mean you don't go to school. That doesn't mean you don't go to work. You do that. Okay? But the priority of your life should be the kingdom of God. Seek ye first in the kingdom of God, then all these things shall be added unto you. A Christian should never say, well, the Lord's coming, so, you know, I'm not going to go to school. I'm not going to get prepared. No, you, 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 you choose your profession. Pray that God direct you. And you do that. If he doesn't come, you won't regret it. If he comes, it won't matter. But you don't just check out a society. You're a light, you're salt, and God will use you for his glory. Okay? So that you can be an asset to him, not a liability. We've got too many liabilities in our society today. Too many entitled people. Many in the church. God hates lazy people. Read the Proverbs. Paul says, you don't work, you don't eat. You're hurt. Accidents happen. You're injured. We're not talking about that. We're talking about lazy people. (laughs) Entitled people. What are you doing for the kingdom of God, ladies and gentlemen? I am so glad God saved me at 23 years of age. I wish he would have saved me at eight. (laughs) Seven. (laughs) But let me tell you, when God saved us in the 70s, he saved us. He turned us around. We were interested in only one thing. Serving the Lord. You know why? We just happened to believe that he was coming. Do you believe he's coming? I sure hope so. Father, thank you for your grace and love and your goodness. We love you. We thank you. Lord, I lift every person tonight and those over the internet, Lord, that you would minister their hearts. And Lord, if someone doesn't know you, that you would speak to their hearts, your love for them and uh, your desire to save them, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you believe Jesus died for you and that he rose from the dead as evidence of that accepted payment, then you can be saved. You're not saved by your works. You're not saved because you're so good. You're saved because you are rotten to the core and lost and an enemy of God. Yet he died for you and paid the price for you that if you believe he loved you so, that now you can respond to him by asking them to make you a son or his daughter. Grace through faith, that not of yourself, is a gift of God. If that's your desire, this is your prayer to him. Over the internet or here, you can say it. And you'll be asking them to be your Lord and Savior. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.